Jesus departed with his disciples. This is beginning of verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, hearing all that he was doing. They came to him in great numbers from Judea and Jerusalem to the south. Edomia, which actually comes from Edom, uh, actually King Herod's family was from Edomia, uh, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon, miles to the north. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the, uh, the crowd, so that they would not crush him. For he, You don't want to be the guy to crush Jesus. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell, fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God! But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. He went out to the mountain and they called to, uh, and called to him those whom he wanted. And they came to him and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to, to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he would give the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, uh, that is, sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, uh, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this The word of our God endures. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. So my first job in ministry was working for a backyard camp. Uh, And what we did was we did um, elementary. It was an elementary camp, so kindergarten through fifth grade. Um, And we did backyard camps uh, through Grace Fellowship Church. Um, in the homes, uh, in the backyards of people that, were, uh, that went to church at, the, uh, at Grace. And it was a great time, um, but I had like boldly gone and like asked for a job at Grace, and they said, oh yeah, we, uh, we have this internship doing backyard camps with kids, and we'd love you to be on that team. I was 18 years old. I was about to turn 19. And so I joined this team, and the team was roughly about 12 people that were kind of the staff on here. And part of the reasons why they hired a staff of 18-year-olds was because they didn't have to pay them very much, uh, and we had a whole lot of time uh, in the summertime. Um, but we were a part of the church leadership, and one of the primary initiatives that the church was doing, and Grace is a huge church, thousands of members, and yet they, they trusted this group of teenagers with shepherding these kids, these elementary school students, throughout the summer. And I remember feeling an extraordinary amount of, well, I was scared to death, but I was also just affirmed in, in the fact that the pastor and the, and the staff and the elders would trust these kids, these people who were kids, we were kids ourselves, with discipling and, and shepherding um, these elementary school students. It, it, was, it was remarkable. And one of the things that I remember most about that in regards to the, to the affirmation part of it is that I remember the pastor, when, when, when we first, like the first few weeks of working at the church, he would do this extraordinary thing. He, he, would, he would have us by his side. And if I was walking 
like down the hallway with somebody, and then maybe another staff member or, or even an elder of the church came by, somebody that I had only seen on the stage, and I was kind of nervous. He, he would introduce me, and when he introduced me, I could hear it in his voice that he cared about me. He, he would say my full name, which was something that I don't even know if he realized what he was doing, but for him to, 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 to introduce me to another one of the pastors or another staff member or an elder and say, have you met Joe Miller? He's working on staff now with us. And to hear my full name come out of this guy's mouth was an extraordinary thing. Like I said, I don't even know if he realized he was doing it, but I felt like I actually have a responsibility. I, have, I, I, it, 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 I belong here. It matters that I'm here. Uh, there's, a, there's a job that, that this man, that this church, that God would have me do. Um, and I think that there is so much of that in this text where Jesus is calling the disciples. Like, you know, uh, Jay, uh, uh, Jen mentioned Motley Crue. We're not going to play Motley Crue in the outro music. I know you're already looking for it, but no. Um, but, you know, he called this just ragtag group of guys, most of whom probably were young. I mean, these guys were probably some, maybe even like as young as 13 um, and probably no older than 30, you know, uh, young guys. And he called them to change the world. Now, obviously, he called them to do it through him, and he was going to be with them, but he did extraordinary things through these guys. And does it give you some kind of hope that the, the one we believe is God incarnate, our, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Master. He chose a team of disciples to be his apostles. Even though they were a dozen men who wouldn't normally, you wouldn't normally think of as like leadership material. The word apostle means, does anybody know what it means? Hmm. One who is sent out. In our passage for this morning, Mark tells us how Jesus, in the midst of being overwhelmed by the amount of people who had been attracted to his teaching, went up a mountain. And he took 12 men with him. He took Peter, the man who would, who would be the rock on whom the church would be built. But Peter was also the man um, who, on the eve of the crucifixion, would repeatedly deny that he even knew Jesus. He took James and John, the, the sons of thunder, you know, who would often kind of jump the gun and, and would be need to kind of, you know, humbled and brought, da- back, brought back down to reality. He took Thomas, the doubter. He took Matthew, the, the, the tax collector, the one who was conspiring with the, 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 the imperial forces. He took Simon, the zealot. He even took Judas Iscariot, the man who, who would betray Jesus and hand him over to the authorities. And he took a few others who are barely mentioned in the New Testament. While several of them do have their moments, the bottom line is that they were not men that you would expect Jesus to pick. And they certainly aren't men who would have chosen each other for that team. Yet Jesus used them to change the world. New Hope and St. Hilda's are currently mourning the loss of Tommy Boyce, who served as as one of the building sextons, a maintenance men for, for the past few years. And, and Tommy was a humble man with a smile that was infectious. Many of you probably um, didn't get a chance to meet with him. He, like Jim mentioned, he's uh, he'd been bedridden for the past uh, six months or so. 
But his kindness and his dedication to God's kingdom was an inspiration. And while it was reassuring that the cancer that had spread throughout his body could harm him no more, he rests in the loving arms of his father. He will be sorely missed by those of us who knew him. For me, Tommy is a reminder of these remarkable things that God can do in the life of a human being when they trust in God's path. He's a reminder of how powerful the the gift of God's redemption is, that no matter how dark some chapters of a person's life can be, and and Tommy, if, if he were here, he would tell you there were some parts of my life that were dark. But no matter how dark, there's never one corner of anyone's life that cannot be redeemed for kingdom purposes that cannot be revived for new life and reconciled to the loving Creator. As Paul tells us in Romans, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always saddened to hear people, especially men, um, say that they're hesitant to come to church because lightning might strike them down as soon as they walk in the door. They joke about it, and from a pastoral point of view, I'd, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt and trust that there's, you know, there's humility in their words. From their point of view, the church is a place that's filled with the holy and if they take one step in the door God's going to reject them like he was coughing up poison sometimes I can even hear a hint of sadness in their stories like they wish they could hear like they wish they could enter God's house but they know that they wouldn't be welcome some of us know the tragedy of course in that line of thinking we know the fact that there is no one who sits in this room today redeemed by their own merit in another one of Paul's letters, he writes, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are, think, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be, get this, to be our way of life. You see, this is backwards from how we might expect it to be. The person who, who thinks that lightning's going to strike them once they walk into a church assumes that God has created humanity for good works and our responsibility is to do enough of those good works to do a good enough job at, at those good works to earn God's love and therefore be welcome in places like church and heaven. Or maybe they're under the assumption that there are some things which are just unredeemable. Or some people who are unredeemable. Maybe they've done things that they're assuming are unforgivable. God doesn't want me in that church. I've cheated. 
I've lied. I've stole. I've cheated on my wife. I've, I've treated others like objects. I've destroyed and I've tainted the things that God calls good. No, no, I'm, I'm not good enough to be with this holy group of people called the church. And it may even be darker than that. Well, sure, I'm a sinner, but those Christians are just a bunch of naive suckers gathering together in their holy little church, their holy little club. They have no idea what's going on in the real world, right? They have no idea. They don't know what I've seen. They're huddling together and, and, and keeping the, the wool over each other's eyes. But out here in the real world, out here where I live, I keep my eyes wide open. So no, you, know, you can have your church. See, a religion of merit and works might feel right at home from that point of view. The holy stay in church and the sinners, they stay outside the doors. But, but that's not Christianity. Christianity says that God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says that it had nothing to do with how good a person you were or how many good works you did. God hasn't hasn't been clocking your hours volunteering at homeless shelters, and he hasn't been tallying up the amount of money that you've been given to the church. No, the gospel says that Jesus looks me right in the eye. He sees everything about me which has fallen short. He even sees those sinful things about me that even I haven't realized. I mean, just think about the amount of times we've sinned and just forgotten about it. He sees all of that, and he tells me that he loves me exactly as I am, and he says, this sinner, this lump of a man, that's the guy I want on my team. And then he goes to the cross. He dies for my sins, and he offers me new life in his resurrection. Because although he loves me exactly the way uh, I am, he desires that I grow into the man that he created me to be. There's often this lie that says that the closer that I get to God, the less me I become. And that's a lie. The closer you get to God, the more you get to experience the real you. The more God, the more the rest of the world will be able to experience the real you. It's funny that the messier I allow my office to get, the less it serves its purposes as my office. But when I take the time to clean it, when I take the time to put books back on the shelf where they belong, when I straighten the chairs and I organize the papers, it's funny, the more the office functions the way that it's supposed to function. Friends, don't doubt, I don't doubt that God is calling you to cleaner living. I'm just ready to admit that no one can clean up your life the way God can. Christianity, Christianity calls us to redemption calls us to reconciliation, to to transformation, to renewal. But he does it all by grace because of the holy, resilient, sovereign, incredible, remarkable love that he has for you and I. You see, your heavenly Father is crazy about you. Your heavenly Father is nuts about you. He's not just interested in you being redeemed so that you can sit on a fluffy cloud one day in the future. The new creation we have in Christ redefines our lives, but but it also redefines our purpose. It refines our purpose. Let me say that again. The new creation we have in Christ refines not only our lives, but also our purpose. You can tweet that. A bit ago, I read some of Paul's words in Ephesians. 
And at the end of that passage, after he explains that we've been saved by grace through faith, he goes on to say that there's a reason why we've been saved. He even uses, get this, creation language. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the ongoing, life-giving, dynamic work of creation? That's what God is doing in us through Christ. Follow me here. Instead of saying that we've been created for good works in order that we might earn a ticket to ride, Paul says that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, by the way, he prepared beforehand to be not the rules we follow so we can get into heaven when we die, to be our way of life. So he didn't earn this salvation. It was a gift. But here's the thing. In the ancient world, the ancient world of Jesus and Paul, gifts implied response. In essence, that, that is Christianity. That's what it means to follow Christ, uh, to do these good works that we've been created to do. It, it's all a response to the gift of grace that he's given us. And that'll mean discipleship. That'll mean the renewal of our minds. That'll mean behavioral change. If Jesus truly did pay a price for my life, I should probably start living like I'm his. When Jesus called 12, he called them into purpose. Mark tells us he he calls them with with three things that I think can speak into our purpose as he calls us today. The first thing Mark tells us is when he named his apostles, he called them to be with him. So first and foremost, the most important thing for us to remember is that you can't give what you don't have. If you look at the the history of non-denominational faith traditions um, like New Hope, you'll see that one one of the things that churches like New Hope have emphasized is that God desires a personal relationship with us. He doesn't just want us to check all the religion boxes by praying right and serving right and going to church every Sunday. He's happy when we do those things. But, but they should flow um, not out of obligation, but out of a relationship with him that's filling our cups. Bill Hybels wrote a book called Simplify that everybody should read, which is about uncluttering your soul. And he's a pastor of Willow Creek, so it's this ginormous evangelical church outside of Chicago. As someone who probably interacts with thousands of people as a part of his job, he noticed several words that would repeatedly come up in conversation as he was in, 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 in conversation with folks at his church. He would hear these words exhausted. He would hear overwhelmed. He would hear overscheduled. He would hear anxious and isolated and dissatisfied. And as a pastor, he wondered what it meant that so many of his congregants were feeling this way. People stressed and busy at work. Business leaders anxious about next month's payroll. Students living without margin because they've crammed their schedules full of school and sports. Parents running on empty because they haven't given themselves to themselves in months. Does this sound familiar to anybody? The book goes in a lot of different directions. It's going to talk, it talks about getting control of your calendar and mastering your finances and, and re, refining your work habits and all that really good stuff. But, but this is where he begins. He begins with connecting with God. 
He says, when I feel God's love, when I feel the Holy Spirit is bubbling within my spirit, when I'm in conversations with Him throughout my day, hearing His whispers, trying to be present and responsive to Him, when I'm really in a dialed-in relationship with God, that's the, most, that's the single most replenishing dynamic in my life. One of the things that's, that's encouraging to me about Jesus' words to His disciples um, which is, you know, early on in the story, is that they were anything but experts on Jesus' mission. And while I can't imagine what it meant for them to actually, you know, be with Jesus for those, those years of his earthly ministry, we know that they can't have truly understand, understood what was going on because the final chapters of the Gospels, you know, they're filled with their doubt, with their denial, with their betrayal, that call to be with him had to continue actually well past the resurrection. And you can bet that this was what helped them recover the plot when they lost it. What does it mean? Um, what does that look like for us? It might look like time in prayer. It's going to look like time in prayer. Time in scripture, time in worship, time in God-centered fellowship. It'll be those things that God will use to replenish your soul and draw you closer to him. Because if his disciples, who were with Jesus day in and day out, lost the plot when push came to shove, it's a safe bet, then you and I will do the same. So here's the question. Have you made choices? Have you arranged your schedule to spend time with God? What does it actually look like for you? Um, It can look like a lot of different things, but probably the simplest place to begin is 15 minutes in a chair every day connecting with God. Just try it for a month. I dare you. You might say, oh, Joe, that's easy for you. You know, it's your job to connect with God. Baloney. In fact, I might even venture to say that it is harder in some respects now that I'm a full-time pastor. I'm spending days at the church reading the Bible constantly, studying commentaries, other Christian literature, and all that's good stuff. But how easy is it for me to go all day studying a passage of Scripture or some theological principle, thinking I'm doing God's work, and then it hits me that I've spent all this time with this literature and I've never really connected with God. I've never really connected with God over any of it. I've made it all head and no heart. God wants a relationship with me, and and that's where obedience is going to come from. It's going to float out of that relationship. He wants me to spend time in Scripture because he wants a relationship, not a rule book. It's no coincidence that so much of the New Testament is an individual such as Paul writing to a specific group of people, suffering with a specific group of issues. He wants us to read those passages and interpret them for our own day. And it's not going to work if we just look at the Bible like a rule book. This is life. This is life in Christ. This sanctification, this renewal, this is going to take relationship. The second thing that Jesus told his disciples that speak into God's purpose for our lives, this incredible thing that he told the disciples to do and and gave them permission to do, was proclaim the message. Mark has already given us a very focused summary of what Jesus' message was. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Believe in the good news. Now, isn't it cool 
how the last instruction is crucial to, the, to this one? How could we possibly hope to proclaim the message in any sort of clarity, empathy, and love unless it's actually coming out of the relationship that we, even the collective we, have with God? I think that this topic of evangelism is, is it's something that we're going to spend a lot more time on in the coming years. I know it's a word that makes many of us uncomfortable because we live in a culture that says that faith is just fine as long as we don't impose it on anybody else. This, in part, comes from the fact that Christians have done some pretty horrendous things in the name of evangelism over the centuries. Still, Paul tells us, and funny how, or Peter tells us, and it's funny how it's Peter that tells us this, Peter the denier. He says, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Isn't it funny how we conveniently often leave off that last phrase whenever we're quoting that passage to one another? Gentleness and reverence should characterize the proclamation of the gospel and evangelism, you know, proclaiming the gospel. Are we living a life that is centered on that kind of love, on, on that kind of gentleness and reverence. When someone sees the work you do at your job, at your school, uh, wherever, um, wherever, when they describe your work, would they use words like love and joy and peace and patience? Would, would they say, oh, I see kindness in that person's work. I see goodness and I see gentleness. I see faithfulness. Man, this person has a lot of self-control. Or would they use words that aren't so church-friendly? Although I will confess that there are instances, that these instances are few and far between, one of, one of my favorite questions is when a person asks me why I do what I do. And I'll tell you, that rarely has anything to do with pastoring. Nobody really ever wants to hear why you become a pastor. More likely, it's when I'm caught being kind or honest in a way that clearly inconveniences me. It's in those instances that I feel like I just might be ready to humbly proclaim the gospel. Evangelism has been described at its core as just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Because in that moment, in in a humility that honestly comes from a place where I'm loving my neighbor enough to not stay silent for one more second, that I declare Jesus is Lord and the message is proclaimed, and it's proclaimed with gentleness, it's proclaimed with reverence. Lastly, Jesus gives his disciples the authority to cast out demons. Now, Like I said, I've been doing this ministry stuff for about 20 years. I started in high school, and I I never really stopped. I've seen a lot of dark things, but I'll honestly say that that God hasn't put a demon in my path, at least not one that I understood as such. But I have seen evil. I've seen evil manifest itself in extraordinarily dark ways. I've seen it take the form of volatile, life-sucking addictions to drugs and alcohol and pornography and possessions and money. Marriages have been torn apart over these things. Families have been ripped apart. All you have to do is turn on the news and you see reports of humanity finding new and innovative ways of killing each other. 
We've seen multitudes gripped by mental illness. We've seen injustice take the form of poverty and racism and sexism and oppression. Families fleeing from their homes because they can't stand to spend one more second in their war-torn country. You want to know what demonic activity looks like in our day? You don't have to look far. And yet it's that world. It's that world that Christ's church has been placed. Now we can and we should be engaged in honest, grace-infused conversation about what that response actually looks like in the practical sense. But I guarantee you the solution isn't to ignore it. This raises the stakes and again puts emphasis on those things that we already mentioned. You, you want to do justice. You want to do gospel proclamation. This uh, disciplined relationship with God is going to be the center of it. It's going to be that, that our work is, is built and rooted in the foundation of the gospel and understanding what the gospel really is. Because it's those things that are going to fuel our responses to the demons of our day. It's from that point of view of a, of a relationship with God who is anything but silent and a gospel that says that God is actively putting the world to rights. That's the launching pad for the church being the church. That's the kingdom movement that New Hope Community Church is a part of. That's the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. So as Jen mentioned earlier, what's, what's the purpose that you've been feeling? Maybe for you this morning it's, you know, I haven't been very clear about my purpose lately. You know, I, I've, I've, I've lost it. I've, I, 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 my prayer is actually that I don't know what to do. Maybe for you, the prayer is that, you know what? I know full well what I should do, and I don't have the courage to do it. I don't know what it is. I don't know where you come from in, in this morning, although I can say this. Uh, one of the great things about a, a small church like ours is that we can. It, it is practical. It's reasonable that we would all know the kind of stuff that each other's struggling with. That's why we have house churches. That's why we're doing this Wednesday night group. That's why we gather together for coffee and donuts after church. We're doing this because we're trying to do this life together. We're trying to remind each other of the relationship that we have with God because we also have a collective relationship with God. We're trying to remind each other of of the gospel. We're trying to help each other stay accountable to, to find true north, to seek first his kingdom. That's what it means for the church to be the church. But where is it coming from? Is it coming from Christ? Is it coming from a, a relationship rooting in God's, rooted in God's love for us? Or is it coming from this thing that I, I need to make sure that I'm doing A, B, and C because that's what it's going to take for God to love me? No. We've got to reject that lie. We've got to reject that lie. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for us. Father, you have called us You've called us in Christ Jesus. You've created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the earth. You knew that you were going to create us, and you created us for something. You created us with a promise. You created us for a purpose. Whisper that in our ear, God. Shout it in our ear. Whatever it's going to take to help us understand what you've called us into. Help us to 
to see that regardless of what it looks like, it's all following your energy. It's following the spirit that you've given in us. It's not, it's not me trying to do the, the things that I want to do. It's how I can partner with the work that you're doing in the world. Because there's so much pain. There's so much evil. There's so much discomfort. And people who are hungry for the love of God. Help me be the person. Help me be the man that you would have me to be. And involved in putting my hands to the things that you would have me do. Have the friends that you would have me have. So that way I can seek your kingdom. And hear that it matters to the world. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray and say all this. Amen.